several years of practicing with you on Zoom, we've built up a loving Sangha, even if I haven't met some of you in person. What we're going to study tonight is in part about building this friendship. I will be talking about the Magaya Sutta, in which Magaya is a somewhat immature and impulsive monk, not yet ripe, but eager to get on with it. He's attending the Buddha. When he decides he wants to now go alms gathering in the village of Jantu, the Buddha replied, do whatever you think it is time for. And uh, this is the second main point of the sutta. As Norman says in his introduction to this sutra, it shows the sensitivity with which the Buddha relates to his students and with plenty of patience, letting them make their own mistakes when necessary. So experience is key. My wife loves it if I talk about experience because she says Vajrayana practice is very much about experience. And she's a senior student of the Tibetan lineages of Kagyu and Shampa, with 20 years of practice and decades of Zen practice and Vipassana. So she lends a trusted critical eye to my writing. As I said, experience is key here. How else are we going to learn? In the beginner's practice, one may find oneself trying to ape the elders, trying to model the elders. Art students begin by aping the masters, sitting in museums and sketching, <clears throat> learning composition, and the development of style. My piano practice can be like this. I have many recordings of Rhapsody in Blue, but no two are alike and I find parts in each that I try to emulate. Or Ian Anderson playing with just Jethro Tull, a Bach Bore, which I really love. After returning from his alms quest, Magaya eats his midday meal. He then hikes over to the banks of the Kimikala River. During his hike, Magaya spies a lovely grove of mango trees and is inspired thinking, Truly lovely and delightful is this mango grove. A proper place surely is this for a clansman for, for striving for concentration. Magaya then heads off to see the Buddha to tell him of his find and desire. He says, truly lovely and delightful is this mango grove. A proper place surely is this one for a clansman for striving for concentration. If the exalted one would give me leave, I would come here to this mango grove to strive for concentration. At these words, the exalted one said to the venerable Magaya, wait a little Magaya, I'm alone until some other monk arrives. The Buddha realized that Magaya is pretty new and unripe. He might come to some mental harm in an unsupervised activity. It brings to mind Cobancino advising us not to go sit by the ocean. It could be too powerful an experience. Of course, that was exactly what I wanted to do, living in Santa Cruz at the time, also being unripe and impulsive, which I still am. In a Buddhist trope, 
we are familiar with, Magaya asked twice again. And of course, true to form, the third time he asked the Buddha, the Buddha relented. This reminds me of asking a long-standing member of our Sangha to become Shuso. And true to the script of the ceremony, the individual declines over and over as he prepares to leave until the teacher finally prevails on the person to accept. And upon the third request, I can just imagine the Buddha sighing as he says, well, what can I say when you are striving for concentration? Do what you think it is time for, Magaya. I wonder if the Buddha is thinking, oh boy, here we go. But the Buddha has a ton of patience. You might think it funny or odd that the Buddha would not encourage Magaya to go meditate. But the Buddha understands skillful means, or upaya. He tailors his response to each situation in an appropriate manner. There's no cookie cutter solution or response to each situation. <clears throat> so off goes Magaya to the mango grove. He sits down at the base of a tree and no, a mango does not fall and hit him on the head like Newton. What does happen is there came upon him three evil, unprofitable forms of thought. These were thoughts lustful, thoughts malicious, and thoughts harmful. So much for concentration. Have we ever experienced thoughts like this in meditation? <clears throat> Suzuki Roshi would have us just acknowledge the thoughts and not invite them in for tea. However, Magaya reacts joyously, thinking thus, it is strange in truth. <coughs> Excuse me. It is a wonderful thing in truth that I, who in faith went forth from home to the homeless, should thus be assailed by these three evil, unprofitable forms of thought. So a little while later, he arose from his solitude and went to the Buddha, whom again I can imagine thinking, oh boy, here it comes. Sure enough, Magaya relates his experience with the same joy and then says, it is wonderful in truth that I should be assailed thus. So at this point, the Buddha knows it is time to explain to Magaya the following teachings. Magaya, when the heart's release is immature, five things conduce to its maturity. Here in Magaya, a monk has a lovely intimacy a lovely friendship, a lovely comradeship. So this is the first teaching to Magaya. That is the friendship that happens when you practice together in a monastery setting. When I practiced at Green Gulch and practice periods at Tassajara, I forged lifelong friendships. The Sanghas became family. I now enjoy quite a lot of intimate friends partly because Norman asked me to go on all retreats with him for a number of years, so Sangha members in Vancouver, Bellingham, and Seattle took me into their homes. Dharma friendships are especially deep and meaningful. We share our understandings, even across disciplines, like my wife Jamie's understanding of Tibetan practices. 
and approaches and my exposure to decades of Zen and teachings like this that go back to the Pali Canon and the teachings of the Buddha. These friendships are especially great face to face where we recognize our common Buddha nature as Norman told us in his last lecture. This is not to say we don't benefit from our Zoom connections, but still, it is still more precious face to face. Even on Zoom, we can recall our relationships forged when we were together in person. It is so warm when we are recognized. I attended one of Florence Kaplow's hidden lamp talks on Zoom from Apaya as one of 100 attendees and the only male, I might add. Florence and I have practiced together many years and even roomed together in Seattle. So my heart warmed when she noticed me with a happy, oh, Jeff Bickner. So I think Magaya realizes that this is foremost of what the Buddha was teaching him. As Norman says in the prologue, of course the teacher-student relationship is very important. But there are many other relationships that sustain and inspire our lifetime path. The second thing the Buddha offered to Magaya was the practice of restraint, saying, when the heart's release is immature, a monk is virtuous if he abides restrained. He is perfect in the practice of right behavior, sees danger in trifling faults, and undertakes and trains himself in this way of training. I've slightly cleaned up the wording here, but you get the second point. Magaya has been a bit headstrong and impulsive, determined to ask the Buddha three times for permission to head to the mangrove trees, to meditate and open himself up to the dangers of immature meditation. That was mango trees. How often I catch myself with restraint from an inappropriate response to something said to me. Not just that, but I think my life is one of a lot of restraint. Realizing that sugar is not good for me, I rarely indulge in desserts. Jamie buys some great ice cream, but it will sit in the freezer for a couple of months before it gets used up. I think every action is cause for reflection and restraint. This is not nihilism, just a modicum of wisdom. I know I've been impulsive, but I want to rein that in. I'm not 100% at this practice, but like the precepts, it is an ideal I appreciate. It is my intention. The third thing the Buddha tells Magaya conduces the heart to maturity, regards talk that is serious and suitable for opening up the heart. To quote the sutta, and conduces to downright revulsion to dispassion, to ending, to calm, to comprehension, to perfect insight to nibbana. That is to say, talk about wanting little, about contentment, about solitude, and about avoiding society, about putting forth energy. Talk about virtue, concentration of mind and wisdom. Talk about release, knowledge, an insight of release. Such talk as this, the monk gets at pleasure without pain and without stint. Some of these 
old languages are difficult to unpack. So let's start right at right speech, which is something we are familiar with. Speech that is serious and suitable for opening the heart. It leads to comprehension and calm and perfect insight. This insight is something I do want to talk about. We use English, which is a language of nouns. It's, it. By making things it's, we do a real disservice to our understanding, our insight. I have been reading about the citizen Patawatami nation. Potawatomi? Potawatomi. Thank you, John. Citizen Potawatomi nation, first introduced to me by Merlin Sheldrake in his new book, Entangled Life, and now in Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass. What I want to point out is that there's, in their language, many of what we would call nouns are verbs. A hill is hilling. A lake is laking. It doesn't just fill from shore to shore or just be a body of water, but it includes the whole understanding of the streams that fill the lake, the sounds of the lake lapping and conversing with cedar roots. It is a world where everything is alive. It is this appreciation that coincides with my Buddhist understanding of the oneness of everything the absolute interconnection of everything. It is speaking about what wells up all around us. I think it would be wonderful if we could reflect on this a little each day, considering whatever noun pops up for consideration as a possible verb. Robin Kimmerer speaks of even Saturday or a sandy beach as verbs. Equipped with this grammar of intimacy, it is possible to talk the life of other organisms without reducing them to an it, or borrowing concepts traditionally reserved for humans. By contrast, in English, writes Kimmerer, there is no way to recognize the simple existence of another living being. If you're not a human subject, by default, you're an inanimate object, an it, a mere thing. If you repurpose a human concept to help make sense of a non-human organism, you've tumbled into the trap of anthropomorphism. Use the word it and you've fallen into a different kind of trap. Just think about how much richer our experience can be. So we see how difficult it can be to try to explain Dharma with language. And yet what else do we have? Stories, stories are powerful. Buddhist teachings come from oral memories. Ananda remembers Buddhist teachings and transmits them before they are able to be written down. They're passed down through the ages until they are compiled in the Pali Canon, the Blue Cliff Records, and so on. In reading koan collections or stories of awakening, I always wished I could have been present at the time they happened, hoping I might gather something from the context and the way these things were expressed. Similarly, I'm reminded of my friend Donna's doctoral dissertation in music at Stanford. It was about how do we know what Baroque performance practice sounded like? We have no recordings of Bach from that time, 
we have music notation, but that doesn't tell us how the music sounded back then. It's like the Shurangama Sutra, which we recently studied, and the question posed, how can we really know anything? So the Buddha suggests, a guy comport himself with talk that is serious and suitable for opening the heart. Talk that conduces to dispassion, to calm, to comprehension, and to perfect insight. I think this is a tall order, as words and language can be so tricky. Thus, I hope my words don't lead you astray. Will this lead Magaya to insight? We study a lot of Buddhist texts, dogons, sutras, commentaries, but this may give us an intellectual understanding rather than a direct experience. We obviously will reflect on whatever we've studied, and it may alter our intentions for the better. But the real question is, will it lead us to directly experience our Buddha nature? Okay, let's go to the fourth instruction that Buddha offers to Magaya. The fourth teaching that the Buddha offers Magaya is to abide resolute in energy for the abandoning of unprofitable things. Resolute in the energy for acquiring of profitable things. He is stout and strong in effort, not laying aside the burden in things profitable. Again, I'm packing this language. Unprofitable things are anything that would hinder his spiritual progress or maturation, such as thoughts lustful, thoughts malicious, and thoughts harmful. The very experiences that Magaya brought to the Buddha after meditating in the mango grove. The burden of things profitable is responsibility, the kind of responsibility of doing the right thing, given one's mature insight. We can name a lot of superlatives for the burden of things profitable, like humility, uprightness, etc. Here, the first suggestion can really come into play, the importance of spiritual friends. I can really see how Magaya could be encouraged to practice with strength and energy by his Dharma buddies. I am often inspired by my Dharma friends. The fifth teaching Magaya receives is that a monk is possessed of insight that goes on to penetrate the perfect ending of ill. Well, it doesn't go into this too much more, but you can imagine that this insight isn't something that can be bought. This insight doesn't just come right off the bat, perhaps in the ninth inning or after. Buddha goes on to a monk is endowed with insight that discerns the rise and fall of the Aryan penetration, which goes on to penetrate the perfect ending of ill. Now, usually we recoil when we hear the word Aryan. By Aryan penetration, the Buddha is saying noble or pure penetration. Insight is developed from experience after experience, the ending of ill. I give a lot of thought to um, environmental, to the ending of ill, to environmental concerns and climate change as pertains to the 
um, ending of ill. Not just that. In our world today, there's so much to be concerned about. Injustice is everywhere and a whole history of injustice. But as Neil said last week, we choose the middle path between existence and non-existence. Sometimes Zen is just the art of letting go, breathing. The Buddha sums up these teachings thus. Now, Magaya, this may be looked for by a monk, one who has a lovely intimacy, a lovely friendship, a lovely comradeship. Two, that he will become virtuous, will abide restrained by the restraint of the obligations. Three, be perfect in the practice of right behavior. See danger in trifling faults. Undertake and train himself in the ways of training. This Magaya may be looked for by a monk for that he will become virtuous. He will undertake the ways of training. He'll get with pleasure, without pain, such talk as is serious about concentration of mind and insight of release. This Magaya may be looked for. Five, that he will be possessed of insight to penetrate the perfect ending of ill. I have slightly paraphrased the last part of the summary for clarity. To further his teachings, the Buddha tells Magaya that after establishing himself in the first five, that there are four other things that must that are made to grow. First, the idea of the unlovely is made to grow for the abandonment of lust. Secondly, amity is made to grow for the abandonment of malice. Third, mindfulness of in-breathing and out-breathing is to be made to grow for the suppression of discursive thought. Fourth, the consciousness of impermanence is to be made to grow for the uprooting of the pride of egoism. In him, Magaya, who is conscious of what is not the self, is established. He who is conscious of what is not the self is established. He who is conscious of impermanence, the consciousness of what is not the self, is established. He who is consciousness, he who is conscious of what is not the self wins the uprooting of the pride of egoism in this very life. Namely, he wins Nibbana. Finally, the Buddhist gives an uplifting verse to which Norman has given a wonderful, simple version. I'll read both. Buddha, thoughts trite and subtle, taking shape, cause mind to be elated. Man, ignorant of these, with a whirling brain, strays to and fro, but knowing them ardent and mindful, checks these thoughts of mind. When mind's elation cometh not to pass, the enlightened sage abandons utterly these thoughts of mind that none remain. And now Norman's version. Confused thoughts excite the mind. 
the whirling brain wobbles, but knowing thoughts for what they are quiets them. When the mind is quiet and thoughts don't disturb, there's peace. Isn't that wonderful? It's a great way to finish this lecture, and we leave Magaya on a hopeful note. I'd like us now to break into groups of three. These great folks are your Dharma buddies. So let's consider these teachings and <laughs> this double printed. <laughs> so, um, so try to remember uh, when we break into these groups of three um, that we will be looking at how Dharma friends have helped us and how we can, how we have progressed. And uh, please remember that everything we share is confidential. And so let's honor each other by keeping these confidential discussions. And let's talk for about, let's see, we have time, four minutes each, uninterrupted, uninterrupted. And then we'll meet for another um, couple of minutes after that just to finish up anything that was left unsaid. Uh, we will come back when I ring the bell, and that will be a time for sharing and questions and offerings of whatever you discovered in these talks. So. <clears throat>